Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is TTS Thursday number 7. Today's topics is training adaptation levels and timescales that they happen at. That might sound a bit confusing, but we'll get right into it and I think it will make a lot of sense. But before that, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration. Precision Hydration create electrolyte products that you can match to your individual sweat sodium concentration level so that if you lose a lot of sodium in your sweat, you can get a high, highly concentrated supplement. And if you lose less, then you can use a moderate or a low, low concentration supplement. You can get a ballpark estimate for how much sodium you lose by taking a free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com. Just go to the tab that says free hydration plan and that test has been validated against medical grade equipment measurements. So it is actually a really good estimate of how much you lose in the real world. You can get 15% off your electrolyte order with the promo code DEATTRAFLONSHOW15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses. Roka are the innovating company behind patented technologies such as the Geeko anti-slip technology in their eyewear categories, the arms of technology in their wetsuits and trisuits and many, many others. They have the rapid sight technology in their R1 goggles to help you sight with losing as little momentum as possible by lifting your head less. And these are just a couple of examples of how Roka aim to constantly innovate to improve their products. Check out their entire lineup on roca.com and get 20% off your Roka order with a promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash TTS. Now, a quick note before getting into the main topic for today. The advanced Olympic half and full distance training plans that have been requested for some time uh, are now finally launched and available on Training Peaks. So uh, you can check that out on scientifictriathlon.com forward slash plans. And I will link to that in the show notes or episode description, I should say, as well. Uh, and until the 31st of April, they are available for 60% off. I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of this episode. So if you're interested, stay tuned or go directly to the Training Plans page on scientifictriathlon.com. But now on to today's topic. First, let's outline what we will talk about. And I'll basically give the takeaway of this episode right away. And uh, that takeaway is how and why we overestimate the importance of training adaptations that happen on a shorter timescale. And we underestimate uh, adaptations happening over longer timescales. Or I guess I, I should say that we only emphasize adaptations that happen on shorter timescales and and don't estimate or don't emphasize the adaptations happening on much longer timescales enough. And we'll talk a little bit about the reasons for this perhaps and importantly what to do about this and uh, and how in practice to avoid some common pitfalls and make your training more effective. So to this end we will cover some topics such as the, the different levels of course of training adaptations and the timescales that they operate at. We'll discuss the types of research methods used to study these different levels and we'll discuss what you should be focusing on and what are the pitfalls to avoid and we'll discuss some practical tips and advice at the end. So let's start by the different levels of training adaptations and the timescales that they operate at. We can talk about training adaptations at many different levels. For example, what happens after one workout what happens after a number of workouts done consistently over a period of time. 
and what happens after a large number of workouts done consistently over a long period of time. Every session that we do or every workout is a potential signal for adaptation, but no single signal for adaptation is ever really going to be enough to induce an actual functional adaptation. And I emphasize functional in functional adaptation because by that I mean that it is an adaptation that actually allows us to go faster, get stronger, have better endurance capacity or similar. Because adaptations can can happen at levels that don't really don't really result in in anything like that in anything functional. So these functional adaptations happen when we superimpose many many of these stimuli, many of these signals from from single wor- workouts. We superimpose them upon each other over time. So we train every day, and the signal from one workout is the strongest in the first couple of hours after that particular workout. But it doesn't reach zero or baseline when we do the next workout the following day. So we start from an elevated baseline of of signal uh, or amplitude of the signal. And and then we can build on that. And we build on that each day. And then we get sort of like a stairway pattern at most or or almost in terms of what the signal ends up looking like. And, And in theory, like just to illustrate how we can think about this at least, when that signal reaches a certain amplitude and is present in the body for a long enough duration, that's when we can actually feel or we, we can measure functional adaptations such as you are able to complete a triathlon faster or you're able to bike harder for 20 minutes or run faster for 10 kilometers. So again, I want to emphasize that it, it is an illustration to say that we just superimpose the signals from every session and it's a stairwise pattern. It's not really necessarily as simplistic as that, and and it's definitely not easily quantifiable in terms of there being a specific amplitude that we need to reach or duration threshold. But uh, but this is to give you an idea of conceptualizing how performance adaptations come about in the body. A single signal from a single workout can be enough to induce cellular or molecular adaptations. And quite often in mechanistic research, these kinds of adaptations are considered and talked about as markers of endurance performance. Uh, But these cellular or molecular adaptations, they won't do anything for you unless that signal is amplified enough and present for long enough that those cellular or molecular adaptations turn into higher level physiological adaptations. For example, uh, gene expression of a certain certain gene might be considered a marker of endurance performance but unless that gene expression is uh, turned into a higher level physiological adaptation like let's say for example an increase in mitochondria then that that is not necessarily a relevant or useful adaptation it becomes useful only in the context of of an actual higher level adaptation and even then even that increase in mitochondria is not necessarily enough for you to really go faster necessarily or have better fitness uh, because that could be even further delayed from the physiological adaptation because maybe that's not your bottleneck at that point in time so so really performance is ultimately what we're after and uh, and the further downstream we go or up upstream i should say in terms of the uh, the gene transcription and and so on the, the more uncertainty we have in terms of will that actually make us go faster so in other words uh, the timescales for these molecular and cellular adaptations that are 
considered markers of endurance performance that can happen in as little as one workout you can get a strong signal of some particular marker of adaptation but the time scale for actual functional adaptation that makes us go faster that is more common to happen in anywhere between a couple of weeks to several months or even years and i'll spend just uh, a few minutes here to give an example for those that are really interested in these mechanisms so this is a bit of a nerdy part and uh, you might tune out for a bit and that's absolutely fine this next uh, these next few minutes are not super important it's just to exemplify and and give a bit of a more detailed view but what happens when we train uh, at a cellular level is that different stimuli for example mechanical and metabolic stimuli uh, within the muscle cell cells start a signaling pathway and that stimulus may result in a change of gene expression in the muscle cell and this means simply that a particular gene or set of genes will be transcribed into mRNA and, and then that mRNA is translated into a protein so protein synthesis occurs and that protein serves some functional purpose for example build more mitochondria would be an example of that the important thing to understand here is that in in this example or whatever other example of an adaptation you can think of gene expression does not make you a better athlete what makes you a better athlete is when you have a functionally relevant or clinically relevant change in mitochondrial content in your cell and that actually only makes you faster if that is a bottleneck for you and maybe that is not your bottleneck so just because we see an increase in gene expression of a marker of endurance performance does not mean that you will see a relevant increase in actual protein synthesis through the mRNA translation and even less so when we go even further downstream uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that the protein synthesis will result in a functionally meaningful change of increased mitochondrial content or even further downstream increased performance so in other words gene expression can be seen at the workout level but it might not result in any change in protein synthesis or functional improvements or performance improvements so you might have to wait for the cumulative effect of many workouts repeated consistently over a moderate to long time frame to see a significant change in protein synthesis and uh, and even longer to see that turn into an actual functional advantage and one example that uh, many of you have probably heard of not least in some interviews on this particular podcast with researchers and physiologists is something called pgc1 alpha and when we hear this term we tend to think yay that's a good sign more pgc1 alpha will make me a better athlete somehow i think and uh, that may be true or it may not be true what pgc1 alpha is is simply a transcriptional regulator so it forms part of the signaling cascade from a stimulus so exercise of some sort usually and and it is a transcriptional regulator regulator because it helps increase the probability of certain genes in our dna being transcribed into that mrna that will then encode for certain proteins and uh, so that mrna then needs to be encoded for proteins that can be used in mitochondrial biogenesis but each step is just a probability and just because we have more pgc1 alpha activity doesn't mean that we'll automatically see more mitochondria and if we do it will likely take much longer than just the stimulus we got from that one session that increased pgc1 alpha and again to take it even one step further 
while there is an obvious and very strong correlation between mitochondrial content and endurance capacity, there still isn't a guarantee at an individual level that more mitochondria will make you faster, uh, because that might not be your limiter. So once we draw out this example from from upstream to downstream, an actual change in performance is the is the ultimate adaptation we're looking for, and not a marker of adaptation like PGC one alpha. So just when you see a term like that thrown around and of course, it's a good sign if, for example, a study finds that that something increases that sort of activity, but it's definitely not the be-all, end-all. And uh, yeah, you need to just put your critical thinking skills at work there. So um, that's nerd alert over, and, and we can go back to discussing a little bit about different types of research methods used to study these different levels of adaptations. So research studies, fortunately, operate at all points on this continuum, which is great. Uh, and uh, they might, for example, investigate uh, the effect of a single workout or just a handful of workouts comparing a particular protocol towards another and then see at a cellular or molecular level what happens. But also other studies look at things from a more high level, higher level physiological adaptation perspective, for example, looking for changes in VO2 max, uh, an example would be how does two weeks of high-intensity interval training impact VO2 max? That would be a more moderate timescale and a higher level physiological adaptation. And sometimes those sorts of studies would also have a performance adaptation measurement like a time trial, but sometimes not. Sometimes they only look at VO2 max and then we need to be cognizant of the fact that just because VO2 max increased is not necessarily, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that performance increased. Moderate-term studies like this might typically last anywhere from 2 weeks to 12 weeks or so. And then finally we have longitudinal studies that can be prospective or retrospective. And they look at things like how did this group of World Tour riders train over 4 years and what was their performance level? Or how did this cross-country skier train over her entire career and what was the resulting performance level? These types of studies would typically observe months or years of training, as you can hear from, from those examples. And uh, and they look at a very high-level performance as, as an outcome, typically, and, and the input is also quite high-level. It's not about the details of the interval workout or uh, the fasting training protocol used. It's more about how much did they train and, and maybe a high-level training intensity distribution investigation. What is important when we look at research is to understand what level we are observing and not treating all of these different types of studies as equal. A positive result with one research method is not equivalent to a positive result with another method. So if we look at studies investigating the mechanism of a single or a few workouts in particular, then we need to really pay attention to what these studies actually show. The results might be wonderfully promising in terms of cellular and molecular adaptations, but until we have seen that training protocol or whether it's a, it, it can be a nutritional intervention or use of some sort of equipment or whatever, until we have seen that in a training protocol that is a bit more moderate term at least, then we cannot actually know if the protocol is effective for inducing functional adaptations and improved performance. Also, and just as importantly, it's quite difficult to compare different training interventions and their effectiveness because comparisons don't necessarily hold up from one timescale to the next. Uh, so take, for example, glycogen-depleted training, which has been researched a lot in recent years. 
And the, the reason for this is that it seems really, really effective when we look at it from a workout perspective. Like we deplete glycogen in a group of, of athletes and then we put them through another session when they're very glycogen depleted and we see a massively strong signal as a response to that depleted training. However, when we look at this from a more moderate time scale, so these athletes go through a protocol when they do this type of training a few times per week for three or four weeks, then there is significantly less, if any, evidence of it being effective or more effective than just going through your training as normal. And especially when it comes to it as part of a long-term strategy, well, there is no long-term study, and that's not a fault of this method or this intervention in itself, because there's really not not anything really that has been studied uh, long term as an interventional study uh, in sports science or very few things at least so but we can go to anecdotal evidence and uh, best practices and of course it becomes a lot more subjective and uh, and unclear but uh, but when we look at how the best athletes in the world train we we rarely see that athletes talk about that as being a key to their to their performance improvements or even something that that many athletes use some might use it sparingly but most i think would really not use it at least not intentionally that that much it's not something that is that a lot of stock is put into so to say in in the world-class athletes camp so so from a long-term strategy standpoint it doesn't seem that this training method although it looks super promising from a cellular and molecular perspective is actually making that big of a difference. So again, this is just an example. I'm definitely not trying to hate on glycogen-depleted training, but I do think that it's an intervention that uh, we, and I include myself in that with some interviews I've done, we have given, given it a lot of attention on the basis of evidence of adaptations that exist only at a very short end timescale. And, and it doesn't necessarily translate to those moderate and long end timescales. And, and the same goes for other examples as well. And as an example of comparing training protocols, let's say we compare a high-intensity interval training protocol with a medium-duration endurance workout, so maybe a long, well, a longer workout than a HIT workout, but with just a sort of steady endurance intensity. On the short scale, comparing the signal strength from one single workout, we'll probably find that the HIT session seems a lot more effective. But then when we, again, go and look at anecdotal evidence and also longitudinal studies of top-performing endurance athletes, the one thing almost all of them seem to have in common is a large volume of training at relatively low intensities. In terms of high-intensity training, we see that some athletes might use it quite a bit. Others seem to do not so much of it, but their hard workouts are more like threshold type of training. There really isn't as strong of a common denominator there. In other words it seems really, really clear that to maximize your potential, that high volume of endurance training at relatively long intensity over a long period of time is necessary, but high-intensity training, while a useful tool, doesn't seem to be absolutely necessary because some athletes get really, really good without focusing too much on that. But again, when the study is done at a different timescale at the workout level or even a two-week intervention, then we get a different result than what these longitudinal studies and anecdotal evidence would show. So all this is to say that if you need to maximize your performance for a race two weeks from now, then of course look at the research that is investigating that specific problem. But if you're thinking about becoming the best athlete you can possibly be, not just this year, but in the years to come, and get as close to your potential as possible, 
then you need to think really critically about when you can and when you cannot extrapolate research findings from completely different timescales and different adaptation levels to those longer time horizons and for the purposes of maximizing performance and functional adaptations uh, at uh, over the, those longer time horizons so now let's discuss let's discuss and i think you already know the answer to this based on what i've talked about so far what level of adaptations and what time scales uh, of adaptations should you be focusing on mostly in your training well it is context dependent uh, we should say it depends is the, the common answer let's say you're two months out from the olympic games or two months out from kona then you're not and you should not be thinking about next year you should be thinking about exactly two months from now and that's that the same can be true for your proverbial olympic games even if you're not going to the olympic games but you're doing your key race of the year then for you that is what you should be focusing on at that point in time but uh, that being said i think it's very rarely an either or situation because more often than not you will know way more than two months before what your key races of any given season will be so maybe you have a couple of absolute key races for the year and you know of them early on and uh, you can work towards performing optimally in those races from the very start of the season from the new year and if your races are in the summer then yeah it's the training that you're doing working towards those races isn't really any different and isn't any it doesn't go against the training that you would be doing if you're working towards general long-term performance improvements so it's not an either or choice but when you think about your training and plan your training your mindset in my opinion should be that the main emphasis is on actual functional adaptations and performance improvements and uh, and accepting that the timescales that come with those kinds of adaptations are not short you can gain some of them in just weeks that is true but ultimately if you do it right you can still keep improving after years and years so you can play around with interventions that are cool and exciting and and interesting and experimental but that should be a much smaller part of both your physical and mental energy and resources that goes into that and not the majority of it and you need to be aware that it's very easy to get caught up in the new trendy interventions and inadvertently putting most of your focus on that even if there isn't anything to say that it's going to result in actual functional adaptations to improve performance down the line so just being aware of this tendency uh, will help you make sure that you don't get caught up in it and let the main thing be the main thing and the side curiosity be the side curiosity in a way sometimes you almost have to stop yourself from becoming too smart about things Uh, so if you're performing better now and performing can be in races in workouts or some sort of uh, formal or informal test than two to three months ago then things are going well and uh, what i said there i think is a key practical takeaway from this episode because i said two to three months ago i didn't say four weeks ago which is often you see that quite a lot that people people prescribe formal tests every four weeks or something like that and uh, and it, well four weeks is better than two to three weeks but i still think it's short and especially when you're talking two to three weeks you cannot expect to be better now than you were two to three weeks ago in the real world especially for an experienced athlete two to three months is more of a realistic time scale from which to view performance adaptations and within that time frame if you're training well you can usually expect to see some improvements 
Although that doesn't mean that you'll improve in every single test scenario you could think of, of course, but just some key ones if you do your training right. So so with that, two to three months, I think, is uh, just as a ballpark number, something you can keep in mind as that is a timescale where it starts to make sense to look for performance improvements and adaptations. So we have discussed that timescale level. One more word about what level of adaptation to focus on. These days we have a lot of information and data available and we have a lot of devices and gadgets that can measure stuff. And sometimes we try uh, hard to validate whether our training is working and we do that by some sort of measurement. We set some sort of criteria that in our minds can confirm to us that training is effective. Examples of this might be uh, if I spend 15 to 20 minutes at 90% or higher of my maximum heart rate, then this interval session was effective. Uh, if not, then it wasn't effective and I need to change it. So I reached that 90 plus percent for 15 to 20 minutes. Or another example that is uh, uh, is that if my HRV logger DFA alpha 1 equals 0.75 and my heart rate decoupling was less than 5%, then my long endurance run or ride was what it should be. And if not, then I need to do things better next time. Uh, that is a, a bit of a <laughs> geeky example, and uh, and of course uh, that's not uh, yeah, that's not the case that your ride or run is ruined if that's not the case. Uh, and I guess the point of this whole uh, these examples is that when we start to measure things and set these criteria very specifically, we are at great risk of falling into uh, the region of false pre- precision and a false sense of control. And as both as athletes and coaches, we need to be okay with living with uncertainty and and not having complete control. Uh, and I think I may have talked about uncertainty in some episodes in the past. I'm not entirely sure, but I think this is a very common problem for us triathletes, and uh, it's common I think in society in general. But but I think triathletes in particular, we have a tend to have a particular personality type, uh, and uh, we want answers. We don't like ambiguity and complexities that cannot be taken apart into the root components and and analyzed as as specific separate components and and in training we can run the risk of falling into a sense of false control and certainty by measuring things but often this is just an illusion of knowledge and control and it's not actual knowledge and control so so i think that what we need to become more accepting of is the fact that ignorance is not a problem and uncertainty is not a problem as long as you are aware of it, you are aware that you don't know if one workout is more effective than the other. And you are aware that there may not be a known and quantifiable way to determine if this was an effective workout. In in these cases, ignorance is your ally because it allows you to be open-minded to explorations and discovery and to overcome obstacles. And uh, And I think that a cool quote that I read somewhere that I really like sums it up pretty well. And it says, it's better to be uncomfortably uncertain than comfortably wrong. So we need to learn to be okay with uncertainty, even if it's not comfortable for us. So bringing things back to adaptations, the deeper you go in looking for the underlying adaptations and mechanisms and things that you can measure in order to tease out and prove that down the line this training intervention will improve your performance and uh, and induce functional adaptations, the larger the risk of that underlying adaptation or measurement not corresponding to the end outcome becomes. So in other words, the best measurement of performance is performance itself. Uh, and and be just be aware that you have to be patient. 
again think two to three months rather than two to three weeks in most typical scenarios before actually seeing any significant improvements so let's wrap up with some practical tips and advice uh, at least somewhat practical <laughs> not all of them are super practical but uh, mindset shifts i think and and important things to consider uh, the first one is when evaluating how your training is working or not working try to always bring it back to performance uh, performance in races in key workouts in formal or informal testing or in a combination of all of these and this may sound very evident but but actually i think it's important to remind to get that reminder out there because it's easy to get caught up in exciting new training protocols and measuring their impact with some new fancy gadget uh, so so yeah a reminder of this is important i think and it takes years and years to really maximize your endurance potential so do be patient uh, if you have a period where you're not improving but at least you're still consistently putting in the work, then that's still worth giving yourself a pat on the back for. Don't be hard on yourself if you didn't improve for that two or three month period, because maybe that period was what you needed to set you up for further improvements down the line. As long as you remained consistent, then that can really help you in the future. Then the next uh, piece of advice here is that considering the long timescales and what I mentioned above about it taking years and years to reach your full potential, uh, you shouldn't just single-mindedly be focused on swim, bike, and run performance improvements, period. Because then you run a great risk of losing consistency in one of a couple of possible manners. And if you lose consistency, then you're not going to have those improvements in the end. So you also need to focus on, or actually you primarily need to focus on enjoyment, because if you're not if you're not enjoying what you're doing, then you're not going to be consistent with it, and uh, yeah, then then you're not going to to get those rewards in terms of improved performance. So so that that means that every single workout doesn't have to be your very strictly uh, strict strictly instructed workout about like how to absolutely maximize every single minute of this some workouts you do and just to enjoy them and some training periods even can be just for the enjoyment of it and and you need to find a good balance and make sure you have enough enjoyment in your training because otherwise it's going to be fruitless in the end and uh, the second thing you need to focus on is injury prevention and this includes things like strength and conditioning things that you do out of the pool and off the bike and 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 outside of the run uh, because otherwise again you might lose consistency and finally sustainability in terms of avoiding overtraining or prolonged overreaching uh, so of course if we train more and train harder we might assume that we could get more performance improvements and and that is a fair assumption to a degree but when we when we go beyond a certain point then we run into problems with overtraining or prolonged overreaching that won't help us improve at all so so focusing on sustainability of your training is equally important as focusing on the enjoyment and injury prevention and the performance itself of course so you need to find that balance uh, between focusing on how can you make the boat go faster so to say uh, that is a, an idiom that was i guess coined by uh, by the british rowing team before the 2000 olympics uh, but well how can you make you go faster as an athlete but also find balancing that with enjoy enjoyment injury prevention and general sustainability so not being at the absolute racer's edge because then you likely will step past that point of where your training is sustainable so stay a bit 
a bit away from that razor's edge. And next, be patient with training. Don't expect to see improvements after two to three weeks and then do a complete overhaul of your training if you don't. Give things enough time. And also, when evaluating training, don't spend a whole lot of time analyzing one to two weeks of training. Look at your training in blocks of one to two months and track how your training over time scales like that develops. Are you able to do train more now in April and March of 2021 than you did in April and March of 2020, for example? That would be a good thing to look at. What is your average power on the bike in your workouts in these couple of months than it was in those months in 2020? And uh, the next piece of advice is don't fall in the trap of trying to do some sort of progressive overload on a week-by-week basis. If your fitness today is by and large the same as it was three weeks ago, which uh, I have made the argument that it probably is, then there is no reason that you should train significantly more this week than you did three weeks ago or go significantly harder or longer in your intervals. You can do the exact same training week in, week out, even for two to three months, and, and you can benefit from it. Of course, at some point, you should probably change things up a bit. And on a year-to-year basis, you will be organically progressing your training without even thinking about it because you will be getting fitter. So when you do a new a threshold workout, that will be at your new threshold pace or power or whatever. And, uh, and there's progression in that as well, even if the relative intensity is the same. Uh, I think that what I want to warn against is this tendency among both athletes and coaches to force a progressive overload into a weekly timescale, which I really think can be very dangerous and counterproductive because I don't think that progressive overload op- operates at that timescale. It operates at that much longer timescale of months and years. And finally, when evaluating potential strategies or interventions, whether it's from research studies or articles or friends, just think critically and ask yourself, does it make the boat go faster? Uh, again, you can Google that and, and look for the British rowing team. It's uh, it's a cool story how everything they did in terms of preparing for the Sydney Olympics was uh, was set, was looked at from the perspective of does it make the boat go faster? And in addition to asking yourself that when it comes to evaluating uh, strategies or intervention, ask yourself, are there any risks in terms of enjoyment, interprevention and sustainability? But also, are there opportunity costs? What other option do I have but maybe missing out on because I go for this intervention? I talked before about the high-intensity interval training versus endurance training um, comparisons and how on one timescale, one seems much more effective than the other, but that's not necessarily the case when we look at it from a much longer timescale. So so think about things from what options do you have and uh, what can you not do if you choose to go for a certain intervention? And When you hear about training interventions or workouts that are trendy, look for the evidence for whether they actually do improve performance or are they trendy because there are interesting findings in terms of gene expression and other mechanistic adaptations at a molecular and cellular level, but not so much in terms of functional adaptations. So that's it for today's TTS Thursday. Again, I want to remind you that uh, I'm happy to take questions about this episode. So if you send in questions related to this week's episode, I will answer it in next week's uh, TTS Thursday and uh, before going through the main topic of that episode. So please email me if you have anything that wasn't clear. 
Also, if you missed last week's TTS Thursday episode, that one was on group training. So, uh, so I hope that you enjoyed that. And if not, go and check it out and and enjoy it. And hopefully, you'll learn something. Now, let's talk a little bit about the training plans. So, as I mentioned, I have released new advanced training plans for the Olympic half and full distance. And they are available for now only on Training Peaks, but you can I have the links on scientifictriathlon.com on the training plans page. You can find them in the episode description here as well. And uh, until the 30th of April, you can get 60% off the regular pl- price as I normally do uh, during a launch period of two weeks or a little bit more in this case. Uh, they are available to for a much significant for a very significant discount to to reward early adopters and then they go to the regular price and that stays that way for forever basically uh, but uh, that discount code that you can use is advanced uh, in all caps at checkout and uh, then that will give you the plans for 60 percent off now finally thanks to our sponsors precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com Go and get a free hydration plan for your next race and get 15% off your electrolyte order with the promo code thattriathlonshow 15 And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.